Psalm 22. Um, as we look at all of David's psalms, we have to admit this is probably not uh, one of his most encouraging ones. Throughout the psalm, especially in the first half, David is pretty despondent and he's pretty discouraged and uh, he's battling some sort of emotional turmoil that's uh, in some way based on the circumstances that he's apparently dealing with, which we don't know about. But the bigger turmoil that David's in in Psalm 22 is that as he calls on the Lord, which is always the best thing to do in crisis, uh, it's always the first choice in any situation is to call on the Lord and to ask him for help. But as David's doing that uh, here in this chapter, and you see this in the first couple verses, uh, he doesn't hear from the Lord, or he doesn't feel like he's hearing from the Lord. There seems to be something missing. He says he cries out to the Lord, and there doesn't seem to really be an answer. And he starts to wonder, as our mind is prone to do, uh, when we get discouraged and kind of disheartened and, and we don't know what's going on, he starts to wonder whether the Lord's forsaken him and whether the Lord has gone away somewhere. And, and he doesn't know why, why God's not answering him. If you uh, look at this verse, as you recognize this is the passage that Jesus quotes on the cross when he says uh, at the end, right before he dies, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. So there's a real sense of despair here and a real sense that, that uh, God is not around. Now, a couple important thoughts before we really dive into our, our topic this morning, um, because before we read the passage even, uh, we need to understand a couple things about this thought. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I know I have at certain points in my life not, not actually believing God's not there or that God has, has abandoned me in some way, but feeling a sense of distance, feeling that, that when I pray, and maybe you felt this too, that when we pray, that, that God's not right at the ready like he always is, that he's not answering right away or he's not responding for some reason right away like he always does. Well, let's, let's establish just a couple quick foundational points that will kind of set the stage for that. The first point is that the Lord never abandons his children. The Lord never abandons his children. He's our very present help in time of trouble. He always responds when we call immediately. That's an unshakable promise that we need to rest on and that needs to give us confidence when we pray that, that God will not abandon us. God will not walk away from his children. So even when we're feeling, and I use that word in quotes, even when we're feeling like he's not close, he is close if we love him. Second truth is that when we don't sense his presence, we need to quickly examine the spiritual state of our heart. Because almost always, the reason the Lord is not close is because of us. So we need to spend time in confession and make sure that our heart is right with the Lord because he only abides in holy places. We'll study that more in a couple minutes. So first truth, the Lord never abandons his children. Second truth is we need to examine ourselves when he seems far away. The third truth is when he seems far off, we need to begin to praise him. Now this is counterintuitive in so many ways to what our brain tells us. 
because our tendency when we feel like the Lord is far away and we get into a, into a time of this kind of despair like David's in, we, our mind starts to run crazy and we start to think that God has intentionally left us and that, that he doesn't care. And of course, the devil loves to exacerbate this in our mind. Well, God doesn't care. See, I've told, told you that the truth is now, it's coming out. God made a bunch of promises. He's not near to you and, and he really doesn't really care about you. And, and you just need to kind of do your own thing. This is how the devil works. So instead of buying into that lie and that accusation, we need to refocus our brain because at that point, our, our, our heart and our mind is unfocused. One of the best ways to do this is just to praise the Lord, just to start praising the Lord, just to start singing songs, put on some praise music, and just sing out loud. Even if your car, you, you look like a crazy person, a person pulls up next to you, they're like, what's going on? You're like... You're praising the Lord. That's fine. That's fine. Who cares what they think? They've got their own issues, right? So start to put on some music. Start to praise the Lord or start to pray out loud. We don't pray out loud a lot. Get in a place by yourself and start to just praise God and just talk about his attributes and start to praise him for who he is and cry out to him and ask him for help. Or get into his word and start to praise him for his goodness and remind yourself of his faithfulness. These are all important things to do because when we do that, our perspective changes. Notice as we read verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 22 how quickly David moves from despair to praise because he gets his heart in line. Look at it, chapter 22. We're just going to read five verses this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet, you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now, the linchpin word there is the first word of verse 3. Where David says, yet, yet you are holy. Now that word, it seems kind of innocuous, like maybe just a little bridge word. But that word has a ton of meaning in it. Because what David is saying is, I have a limited understanding, Lord, of your ways. Since you're completely holy and I'm not completely holy, so how can I know what you're doing? How can I know what your purpose is? How can I know why you're doing it this way? So even though I'm in despair and even though I feel like you're way far away and that you've forsaken me, yet I need to remind myself that you are holy. It's so vital, listen now very carefully, it's so vital that we remember that our perception of how the Lord works is, is not crystal clear because we're finite and because we're sinful, and because our faith is not to the level it needs to be. And that becomes even worse when there's sin in our heart, or when self is claiming its rights rather than trusting in the Lord. But the more we abide in his presence, and this is the key this morning that we're going to be talking about, I want to encourage you, write things down this morning, this is an important study. The more we abide in the presence of the Lord, and the more the Lord abides in us, the more we will have power and strength and assurance and confidence and calmness that will fill us. 
The more we abide in his presence, the more he abides in us, the more we'll be full of that. Now, anybody who loves the Lord, when they hear those words, calmness and strength and power and assurance and calmness and confidence, th those, are, those are the words that we crave all the time. Those are the words that we want to be filling us because it's so easy to become weakened and it's so easy to fall back. When you know the Lord and you've been in the presence of the Lord, you crave more and more to be in his presence and to experience his sufficiency because there's nothing better. There's no substitute. There's no substitute for the presence of the Lord. And the enemy works so hard to convince us that there are other options, that there are things that are better, that, 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 that the presence of the Lord's fine on Sunday morning, but during the week there are so many other things that are enjoyable, and there are relationships that are going to bring you greater joy, and there are pleasures that will make you happier, and that there are things that, that will satisfy you and promote you, and why would you want to, uh, why would you want to keep reviving in the presence of the Lord? I mean, you've got all these other other options that are wonderful and it's very subtle and it's very appealing and it keeps lying to us and telling us that we can participate in those things and they get of a they can have a place in our lives and we can still spend time with the Lord during the week and have our hour and a half on Sunday morning and maybe read our Bible once in a while maybe hit a Bible study here and there but but really the rest of the time you can kind of live for yourself and everything will be fine and he uses words like uh, it's too conservative and God's too restrictive and his word is too narrow and Christians are too judgmental. He uses words like that in our brain while also saying you just need to have your freedom and you need to have liberty and, and you need to be open-minded because if you will just do what you want versus what the Bible wants, life will be better. The problem is he never tells us that all those options inhibit the presence of the Lord. And there is nothing better than the presence of the Lord. There's nothing better that we can have in our, in our lives and in our marriages and in our families and in our workplace. Goodness knows this country needs the presence of the Lord. 2016 is Friday. 2016 is an election year. Tell me this isn't maybe the most important election in our, in our country's history. This country needs the presence of the Lord, but the presence of the Lord starts with the church, and the presence of the Lord in the church starts with the people. So we need to be abiding in the presence of the Lord. And, 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 and this church, even us, we need the presence of the Lord 2016. I want to be a church where when you walk in, that you go, wait a second, the Lord's here. The, the Lord's in this place. Like it's that clear, it's that manifest, that it's not just, hey, we're a church and how's everybody and yeah, go to your class. That, that when you walk in, you're hit by the sense of the presence of God so strongly that you say, all right, something's going on here. This is the holy place of God. We need to, we need to get our hearts ready because we're going to enter into the presence of the Lord this morning. And this is going to be wonderful. And, and, and God's going to work. And people are going to get saved. And we're going to get to minister to each other. And we're going to get to praise the Lord. And we're going to get to call on his name. And we get to fellowship with other members of the body. How can we not want that? How can we not want that to be our experience every time we come here? But listen, we have to, I, I can't just assume everybody wants that. So I want to encourage you right now at, at the outset, and then we're going to dive into our study. 
I want you to really assess your heart and mind privately right now. When I, when I talk about those things, when I talk about that you, when you walk in the door, that you sense the presence of God, I mean, it's just, it's overpowering. Does that excite you? Does that kind of set you on fire where you're like, oh, Lord, we need to pray for that, and we need to seek that, and we need to abide in you? Is, is that the reaction of your heart? Or, and be very honest here, are you kind of dull to it? Is it sound nice, but, but really at the end of the day, that's probably going to require me to change in some way, and honestly, I don't really want to change. Now, I'm being not direct because this is a struggle for all of us. And how we answer that question is not only going to reveal our character, but it's going to impact the choices that we make, and it's going to impact how much we embrace the world and how much we put effort into our, our spiritual walk and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. See, if we don't desire the presence of the Lord, if that's not something that we crave, then we're not going to experience it. What I'm hoping we're going to see by the end of the study in a couple minutes is that the presence of the Lord is so much greater than any option that the enemy seems to promote. That the Holy Lord of all would allow us for even a moment, even for a second, to, to, to come near to him, let alone to come boldly to him and to abide with him and to be called his child. That is an amazing, humbling truth that he puts into our lives. That, that he's willing to surround us with his presence and fill us with his spirit and, and change our nature and strengthen us by his might. It, it's almost too much to comprehend. And then on top of that, he says, if you'll abide in my presence, you'll experience the fullness of joy. Joy, contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction, not, not things that are found in the world, not things that are found in sin, but things that are only available in my presence. If you will understand, he says to us, that being in my presence is better than anything. If you can get that ingrained, if we can get that ingrained into our hearts and minds and believe it to the point of changing our lifestyle, it will radically change how next year goes. We will experience things from God that we can't even fathom. You're like, well, that's mystical. I'm not talking mysticism. I'm not talking weirdness. I'm talking the presence of God working out in our lives, that God will bless us and use us in ways that we can't even fathom, that there will be a power and strength and joy and satisfaction and contentment that, that we can't even explain. So how does that happen? How do we sense the presence of the Lord like that? Well, let's start. Here's where we start to write some things down. Let's start with a premise. If you're taking notes, right at the top of the page, there's nothing better than the presence of the Lord. There's nothing better than the presence of the Lord. Let's make that our premise this morning. That's, that's our starting point. Well, if that's true, and it is, that there's nothing better than the presence of the Lord, then, then what do we have to do to make sure we're in his presence at all times? David said that one day in the presence of the Lord is better than a thousand days anywhere else. So if that's true, and it is, then there are two primary questions we have to ask. The first question is, what invites the presence of the Lord? And the second question is, what repels the presence of the Lord? What, what encourages the Lord to come close, and what pushes the Lord 
away. Now, before we answer those specifically, there's a, there's a common answer to both of those questions that we need to make sure is very clear in our mind. And that is, what does the presence of the Lord look like? Where the Lord is, there will always be love, mercy, forgiveness, grace, righteousness, unity, and peace. Where the Lord is, there's always going to be holiness, there's always going to be mercy, there's going to be forgiveness, there's going to be unity, there's going to be affection, there's going to be peace, there's going to be calmness, there's going to be everything we know about the presence of God will be, will be experienced. When he is absent, those things will all be missing. So if they aren't there, we have to look at it and say, well, then God's presence must not be in the middle of this. Because where the Lord is, there's righteousness. Where the Lord is, there's peace. Where the Lord is, there's mercy. Now, as we keep that in mind, that's going to underlie everything that we're going to study. That when the Lord is there, there's purity and righteousness. And when his presence is absent, there's impurity and sin. So if we love him and we love his presence, the choices for us are obvious. So, what invites his presence? That's the first question. What draws him close? What will cause him in the new year to be close to our lives, close to our marriages, close to our families, close to our church? Individually, how do we abide in the presence of God? Corporately, how do we abide in the presence of God? Go back to chapter 22 and verse 3. We sang about it. He's enthroned on the praises of his people. This is a great word in the Hebrew language. It's the word yashab. Who cares, right? Well, yashab is a great word. It means to dwell, inhabit, abide, and remain. Let's put it into basic terms. It means to sit down and not leave. So the Bible says in Psalm 22.3 that when we praise the Lord, and we'll define what that looks like, that when we praise the Lord, God comes and he sits down and he won't leave. He wants to be with us. He wants to revel in our praise. He wants to be close to us because he hears praise of him and he looks at our hearts and says, that's the heart I want and I'm going to just sit down and stay. It doesn't mean that he walks by and goes, that's really nice. Thank you for singing to me. I'm just going to move on. I got a lot to do today. So, so thank you so much and, and that was wonderful and, 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 and I've got other things to do. When we praise the Lord, God comes and he takes a seat. And he stays. And he abides. When you're discouraged, you're having a bad day, you're angry, you're fearful, start praising the Lord. Because when you're discouraged, angry, fearful, upset, disturbed, and you know you need the Lord's help, how are you going to draw him near? You're going to start praising him. Because he says, when you start praising me, I'm there. When you start praising me, I show up and I sit down and I wait. And I want you to look back at the passage because look how quickly that changes our perspective and our mood. In verses 1 and 2, David's alone and he's distant from the Lord and he's discouraged and he feels left out. 
and he's getting bitter, and he thinks God doesn't care about him anymore. And then he says, yet you are holy. And as soon as he says you are holy, he remembers that God abides in the praises of his people, and he remembers that when his ancestors trusted in him, God came through, and when his ancestors called on the Lord, that God answered, and God provided peace, and they weren't disappointed. And instantly, with one statement of praise that seems very, very average, yet you are holy. I mean, it's not like he goes on for 20 minutes and praises the Lord. He's all discouraged and he says, yet Lord, you're holy. And as soon as he says, yet you are holy, everything changes. Oh, now, I remember, yeah, you've been faithful. And yeah, when I pray, you answer. And I'm never disappointed when I trusted you. How could I have been so stupid? How could I have forgotten all that? I just need to praise you. Because when I praise you, you come and sit down and listen. When you're discouraged this week, when you feel disheartened, when something happens and you go, oh, snap, I can't believe that's going on. What am I going to do now? Read Psalm 22.3 and start to praise the Lord. And when you praise the Lord, God comes and abides. And he ministers to you and he helps you. But praise is not just verbal. Praise also is reflected in our attitude and in our actions. When people look at you, when people look at me, I, this is self-examination here, when people look at us, what do they see in our demeanor? Do they see joyful and content and full of faith? Is it clearly evident? I mean, so viscerally element that, uh, uh, evident that we've been spending time in the presence of the Lord? Or do they look at us and they see discontentment and negativity and, and little trace of his presence? When, when people look at your decisions and my decisions, do they see holy choices? Are those actions that evidence God's grace and love and forgiveness that, that are spiritually edifying, that are accountable to the word of God? Or do they see worldliness and, and criticism and, and judgment and a lack of responsibility? See, how we live, how we talk, how we act, uh, what, what demeanor we have, how we carry ourselves, they're all evidence of whether we're abiding in the presence of the Lord or whether we're not. The Lord inhabits the praise of his people. Not just, not just Sunday morning, not just what we did earlier with Renee and Michelle and singing. Yes, he inhabits those praises, but that's not the only praise you're going to have this week, I hope. Praise is how you sing, it's how you talk, it's how you live, it's actions, it's demeanor. Second, would you see that the Lord comes near and we call on him? Write down two verses, you can look at them later. Psalm 145, 18. Psalm 145.18 in Deuteronomy 4.7. Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. What a great verse. What a great promise this week. The Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. And then Deuteronomy 4.7 says, What people is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Stop and think about that just for a minute. Just, just, just let, your, let, your, let your life stop for just a moment. The Lord God comes near to us when we pray. Our feeble, 
stumbling over our words, don't know quite what to say, but I know I need to call on the Lord. My praise is insufficient. I, I'm full of requests, but, but I know I need to call the Lord. And Lord, I want to ask you for some help. And I don't really know what to pray, but, but, but Lord, would you, would you work in my life? You know what God does when he hears that? He doesn't go, are you kidding me? It says in Scripture that he loves those prayers. That he draws near to those prayers. That, that when he hears us pray, he goes, oh, stop. Wait a second. Wait a second. Somebody's praying. And it says that he delights in them so much that he stores them for all eternity in bowls. Can you imagine such a thought? My feeble, pathetic little prayers that I pray like I did Saturday night when I woke up in the night and I had a very disturbing dream and was very full of fear, which is not common for me. And I just started to pray 3 o'clock in the morning, Lord, just protect our house and protect our family. God, God wasn't going, hey, you know what, I'm busy. I'm playing my new video game that I got for Christmas. Immediately, he came near and he abided in that prayer. And he said, that prayer you're praying to me, I'm keeping it. For all eternity, I'm keeping that prayer. See, when we call on his name, he comes near. How can we neglect so great a privilege? How can we neglect so great a privilege when we need a greater sense of his presence? All we have to do is pray. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be polished. We just have to call humbly and sincerely. And when we do that, he is near. He comes close to us and he ministers to us. Somebody say amen to that. What an amazing truth. Like, well, Paul, I don't know how to pray, and I don't pray as good as I... Listen, God's not looking for performance. God never looks for performance. He looks for sincerity. What does the Bible say? God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. So he doesn't care if I can pray well, and I can use the right words, and I can be very erudite from the pulpit. Oh, God, we praise you. Hey, God's not impressed by that. You know what God's impressed by? getting on our knees and humbly and sincerely calling out to him and saying, Lord, I need your help. And God says, I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. Third, would you see quickly that his presence also comes near us when we abide in him. Then he says when we abide in him, he'll abide with us. Write down John 15. You can read it later. Jesus talks about the example of the vine and the branches. He says the branches can't be separated from the vine. He's referring to himself as the vine there because the vine is where the branches draw life. So there's absolutely no way we can separate ourselves from the Lord, listen now, and be living in a way that is contrary to his word and incompatible with holiness and expect his presence to be strong in our lives. There's no way you can live for the world, live for yourself, live in a way that contradicts scripture, live in a way that is incompatible with holiness, and expect God to be all near you, and all abiding with you, and all ministering to you, and helping you, because we're living in a way that's contrary to him. Abiding in him means not abiding 
in the world. It means being inseparable from him. It means trusting him, obeying him, calling on him, submitting to him in every way, not denying him, not detracting from him, not defecting from him, not abandoning him in any way, shape, or form. The Bible says we're not like the world, we're aliens. That means we have different values, different choices, and different associations. I read a verse last night that I don't think I'd ever seen this way before. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Talk about convicting. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. What does that mean? It means self-denial. There's no nice way to put self-denial. You know what it means? It means self-denial. That's the cost of discipleship. That's the cost. But what's better because the stuff we want here, guess what? It's all going to fade away. But God says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, eternal treasures that have great lasting value, not the junk here that's going to disappear. In one year, you won't remember what you got for this Christmas. It has no lasting value. But abiding in Christ does. Fourth, let's finish this section and we'll move on and, and pray. When we praise him, when we call on him, when we abide in him in holiness, his presence will be strong. That means the opposite is also true. When we don't do those things, we can't expect to experience the power and presence of Lord and the assurance of his presence. And to add to that, there are actions we take and attitudes that we carry that actually repel the Lord that actually put up a wall and resist him. So I hate to end on the negative, but this is how it works. Let's, let's talk about four things very quickly that repel his presence. And even worse, these things invite his discipline and they invite his judgment. Now, this is by no means a comprehensive list, but, but there are four things we need to understand this morning that offend the Lord. And these, these need to be on our hit list. These are things that we cannot tolerate. We cannot allow in the days ahead, in the new year. If we want the presence of the Lord in our lives, and we want God to heal our marriages, and we want God to unify our church and use us in a powerful way, and I believe that. I believe he's led us to, to be used in a powerful way. If we want that, then these four things can't have any place. Number one, our pride. Our pride. This is first and foremost. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5. You write them down. They both say the same thing. God is opposed to the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Now, the word that the Holy Spirit uses there for opposed means that God puts on full armor. He's ready to fight our pride with all he has, not only because it's the source for all sin, but because especially in believers, it is a challenge to his authority. And it is a statement that we want to offend his grace. You're like, well, Paul, that's too strong. No, that's what the Bible says. Our pride is an offense to God's grace, and it is a challenge to his authority, especially as believers who have been redeemed out of sin and transformed and given a renewed mind and know better. When we carry pride, God says, uh -uh, I'm not dealing with that. I, I'm not putting up with that. I'm dealing with it. 
I'm putting on my I'm putting on my army gear. I'm putting on my battle gear. I'm coming down to fight that because I'm not going to tolerate that. Christ came and died in humility. We're called to be clothed in humility. So as Christians who bear his name, there should not be one shred of pride. Because pride carries the scent of hell. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Look at the example of Christ, Philippians 2, who laid aside his rights. If the Son of God had to lay aside his rights to save me, then by all means, I better lay aside my rights to serve him. Pride is so subtle, and not one of us knows or admits the amount of control that we allow it to have in our lives. It's so dangerous because we easily justify it, and it's wicked, and it's damaging, and it's usually indicated by a couple things. It's indicated by a demand to have our way. It's indicated by emotional defensiveness. It's indicated by a feeling that we get to have whatever pleasures that we want, and it's indicated by relationships that don't honor the Lord. And we can't allow it. Where there's pride, there's a lack of peace and a lack of God's leading. So God's going to oppose it. Second, the Lord also will not come near where he sees a lack of faith. Now that's logical because why would he want to abide where he's not trusted? Why would, why, why would the Lord want to come near where, where he doesn't uh, see that we believe in him. If you know somebody doesn't trust you, if you know somebody doesn't rely on you to be faithful and to help them, the last thing you want to do is spend time with them. The last thing you want to do is, is work with them even more. If somebody just doesn't trust well, I just don't trust you. I don't think you're reliable. I don't think you're worthy of my time. You're, you're not going to go, well, good, let's have lunch on Monday. Let, let, let's get together. I want, I want to really be near you because you don't trust me and you don't like me and you can't rely on me and you think I'm worthless. So please, let's spend more time together. The Lord, when he looks at us, if he doesn't see faith, he says, I'm not going there. Remember in Nazareth, his hometown, he was up there and he was ministering and he was doing miracles and people were mocking him. Hey, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Who does he think he is? And even his brothers and sisters were kind of giving him a hard time. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, it says Jesus did not do miracles in Nazareth and he left because of their unbelief. The Lord will not abide. He will not bring his presence in a place where he doesn't see faith because he's worthy of our faith. Third, the Lord will not abide where there's a hardened heart. Quoting Isaiah, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 15, the heart of the people has become dull and their ears they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. What's that telling us? It means hard-heartedness creates separation. It pulls us away from the Lord. And listen, he doesn't chase after us. My father used to say, kings don't beg. 
But if you create separation from the Lord, he's not going to chase after you because you don't want to trust him. You don't want to be near him at that point. So his mercy's still available. Jesus says, if the people had just stopped closing their ears and their eyes and their hearts to me, I'm ready to heal them. Uh, God's grace is always ready and available, but he will not abide in a place where hearts are not soft toward him. So every day, we need to surrender ourselves to him. Every day, we need to wake up and say, Lord, my pride is so strong, and the world's appeal is so enticing, and the enemy is so pervasive, but, but Lord, I'm, I'm, I, humble me today. Humble me today. Lord, I want to live in your presence. I want to experience your mercy, and I don't want to separate from you. I don't want my heart to be hardened anyway. So as soon as my heart starts to get hardened, Lord, you break it. As soon as that callus starts to form, Lord, you rip it open because I want to be soft and pliable and near you. I want to be in your presence. Listen, you start praying like that every morning, how do you think God's going to work? Oh, Rhodes, you're full of it. I, I'm not going to get near you. Don't you think that the Lord, if he hears us pray that sincerely, Lord, bring me near you today. Lord, break me of any self-sufficiency. Lord, I want to be near you. You don't think God's going to go, I'm there. I am there. That's what I'm looking for. Fourth and last, and this one's hard. The fourth thing that repels the presence of the Lord is the way we use our mouths. We know from the verse, look back at it one more time, we're going to pray. Psalm 22, 3, it says he inhabits the praises of his people. So what's the opposite of praise? Praise glorifies him. Praise honors him. Praise exalts him. Praise puts everything toward him. So anything that is not toward the Lord, guess what it's toward? It's toward us. So he inhabits the praises of his people. But when we don't use our mouth properly, even indirectly or directly, and we dishonor him and we offend him, it pushes him away. And the Bible is abundantly clear on how we are to use our mouths. Write down these four verses if you're taking notes. Ephesians 4.29, which says, Don't let any corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only what is for the purpose of edifying and ministering grace to the hearer. That is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to, to live. Don't let any corrupt communication, not one word that's not edifying, satisfying to God, pleasing to God, honoring to the Lord, don't let one word come out of your mouth that doesn't fall into that category. Second verse is Ephesians 5.3. Immorality and any impurity must not ever be named among you as is proper for the saints. James 3.10-11. Out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. This shouldn't be. A fountain can't produce both fresh water and bitter water. And James 3.8. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. How do you think the Bible feels about our mouth? Restlessness is an indication of spiritual dissatisfaction. It's, a, it's an indication when we use our mouth carelessly, it's an indication that we're not getting our way and we're not dealing with things as we should. And when the tongue is restless, it starts to gossip, it starts to accuse, it starts to slander, it refuses to forgive, and ultimately it creates dissension and division. Two of the biggest areas that that shows up are in our marriage and in our churches.
marriages and churches are ruined by the mouth. Not by the type of music we do, not by how long the pastor preached, which is obviously too long, not by the color of the carpet, not by whether the chairs are comfortable, not by whether the heat's on. That's not what ruins churches. You know what ruins churches? People's mouths. I've seen it hundreds of times. And here's the way this happens. Let's start with our marriage. How do we talk to our spouse? Do we give words of life or do we give words that tear down? To my wife, I am supposed to see her as she is, which is a picture of the body of Christ that Jesus himself died for. Now, do I have any right as a husband to tear her down? Do I have any right as a husband to slander her, hurt her, diminish her in any way? Because she's a picture of me. She's a picture of one who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So my job as a husband is to love her, edify her, minister to her, and make her feel wonderful. Wives, your job when you look at your husband is to see Jesus Christ. You're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm telling you, he's a picture of Jesus Christ. What did Christ do? He died for us. He redeemed us. So you're going to tell me when your husband's a picture of Jesus Christ that you're going to criticize him, slander him, diminish him, demean him, make him feel lousy about himself? That's what you're going to do because he's a picture of Jesus Christ. How do we talk in the church? This is the body of Christ. This is what Christ died for and sacrificed for. Our our job is to make this body healthy, not to infect it. And how could we possibly for a moment think that we can tear down the walls of the body of Christ rather than building it up and encouraging us? But, but when we are careless with our mouths, please listen to my heart this morning. When we're careless with our mouths, that's exactly what we do. We start to chip at the bricks of the walls of the body of Christ. We start to cut it and infect it and slice it open. Be careful what you post on social media. Be careful what you say to somebody else. Be careful that if you have a complaint that you go to the person instead of somebody else. Be careful because how we use our mouths impacts whether the presence of Christ is here. What I say from the pulpit, I'm responsible for every word this morning that I say. I've prayed, prepared, studied, and asked the Holy Spirit to get me out of the way, but I'm responsible for every word. I can give words of life or I can tear down. I hope you hear words of life. How we speak impacts whether the presence of the Lord is there. If your marriage is struggling right now, and you're not doing well, and you're divided, and you don't even like being in the same room with each other, then I better, uh, then I encourage you, watch the way you're talking. Analyze that. Are you inviting the presence of the Lord? Are you doing things that are going to lead to the presence of the Lord? Or are you hindering him? Because how we talk impacts relationships. I'm done. Every morning, every morning, we need to get up and pray, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart today be acceptable to you. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, you've delivered me from sin. Lord, today, guard this, because James says it's a deadly fire. 
It's full of poison. It can damage more than the wildfire in California is doing right now. I can cause more harm with my tongue in a couple words than any forest fire will ever do. Lord, guard my mouth today. Help me in the way I talk because, Lord, I want to invite your presence. And, Lord, if you abide in the praise of your people, then don't let one word come out of my mouth that is not praiseworthy of you. Oh, church, if we start to pray like that, God is going to move in ways we can't even fathom. I mean that with all my heart. God will move and work, and he will heal marriages, and he'll heal relationships. He'll bring us together as a body. We'll start to impact people for Christ. People will be growing. We'll become a church of prayer, and our praise will be sweet. And we'll say, I can't wait to get to church today because the presence of the Lord's there. How do I know? Because I've been with him. I've been with him. Presence of the Lord is not a small thing, it's everything. And there's nothing better than being in His presence. And I want to challenge and encourage and invite every one of us, myself included, to abide in the presence of the Lord in this new year. If we're going to be that way as a church, it starts with us. And I pray it will be our singular desire.